I invite you to Romans chapter 11 this morning. Romans chapter 11. And our focus this morning is going to be on verses 16 through 24. But I did want to back up to verse 11 and begin reading there just to just remind us of, of the context and what Paul is talking about in this passage. And just to remind ourselves of the overriding questions of this chapter. In Romans chapter 11, Paul is wrestling with the question of, of God's relationship to his historic covenant people, Israel. And whether or not the unbelief of Israel, their, their rejection of Christ, has resulted in God rejecting them completely and setting them aside. And so he asked that question in chapter 11, verse 1, did God reject his people? And that comes in light of everything that Paul said in chapter 10 about the unbelief of Israel and how that unbelief and their hard-heartedness, it, it, it rests on their shoulders. Paul asked the question, did God reject them then? And the answer is absolutely not. By no means. God forbid. How could God reject his people that he foreknew? Verse 2. And then as evidence, further evidence of the fact that God could not reject his people on top of the character of God himself and the fact that God had chosen them, on top of that, he adds evidence from his own life and then also evidence from the Old Testament about the way in which God works among his people. And so Paul says, I'm an example of the fact that God has not rejected the Israelite people. I'm an Israelite. I'm a Jew. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. And yet here I am as a disciple of Jesus Christ. By God's grace, right? God's sovereign grace. And then he goes back and looks at the case of Elijah, how Elijah was discouraged and he was despondent. And the Lord came to him and reminded him, Elijah, you're not alone. It looks like everybody else has abandoned you and it looks like everybody's abandoned me and turned to apostasy. But he reminded Elijah, there are 7,000 others. I've called out 7,000 others among these people who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so many, many of the Israelites had rejected Christ, but not all of them. There was a remnant among them. There was a remnant saved by grace. The rest of them had been hardened, had become hard-hearted, stiff-necked, stubborn. And so then he asked the question in verse 11, so did the unbelief of Israel, their hard-heartedness, has that caused them to fall permanently? To fall beyond recovery? He says, not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. And this is the portion that we looked at last Sunday where we saw really the, the incredible mystery of God's workings among his people throughout the Old Testament and then into the New, and how God, in a very mysterious way, is using the hard-heartedness and the hardening of the Israelite people to bring the gospel to the nations. And that's all a part of God's plan. So the unbelief, the hard-heartedness of the Israelites, that didn't catch God by surprise. That's a part of his sovereign workings. In fact, it was a part of his plan to, to bring the gospel outward 
to the nations. But that, that's not all. That in bringing the gospel to the nations, that, that that would arouse within the Israelite people a jealousy, an envy, if you will, for seeing how God was blessing the Gentile peoples with the gospel. And that would create in them a desire to know Christ. And in fact, Paul says that they will. They will. It would create in them this sense of of jealousy, of wanting to know Christ. And then he says in verse 12, but if their transgression means riches for the world, that is, Israel's hardening means salvation for the rest of the nations, and their loss, that is, Israel's loss, means riches for the Gentiles, then how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? The their inclusion there is the Israelites. So in other words, there's kind of like a circle going on here. The, the Israelites are hard-hearted. They're unbelieving. They have rejected Christ as their Messiah. That's a part of God's plan to bring the gospel to the nations. But then in the gospel going to the nations, that's also a part of God's plan to bring it back full circle back to the Israelite people so that they too would be saved. And he makes a comparison and he says, if, if the riches of the gospel have come to the Gentiles, how much greater will be the riches that flow to the Israelite people, that God's historic covenant people, when salvation comes to them? This is, in a way, what Paul was saying all the way back in the beginning of Romans when he says, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. So God certainly hasn't abandoned the Jewish people. In a sense, the gospel still has them as its target, you know, as to the Jew first and then also to the Gentile. And Paul is showing here how it all fits together. How all the peoples of the world, Jew and Gentile, will be a part of God's covenant people, but in this mysterious way of God working out that plan. Through the hardening of the Jews, to the salvation of the Gentiles, and then to the gospel coming back to the Jews and them being saved. To their full inclusion. In verse 13, Paul says, I'm, take, I'm talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. So Paul called as an apostle to the Gentiles. That was his primary mission, to go to the uttermost parts of the earth and preach the gospel. But yet, all the while still ministering to and praying for, and hoping for the salvation of his own blood people, if you will, his own Jewish people, that they might too be saved. And then he repeats, in a sense, this comparison, verse 15, for if their rejection, that is the rejection of the Israelite people, brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? In other words, how great it will be when the Israelites turn again and are saved with faith in Christ. And then we begin to focus on our passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. In verse 16, Paul says, If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, 
so are the branches. And what Paul is doing there is he is bringing into our bringing into our focus an analogy that is going to help explain the the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles to Abraham to the seed of Abraham and to what God is doing in salvation history. And the the analogy that he's going to use is the analogy of an olive tree, an olive plant. And he begins this analogy in verse 17. You can see him introduce it in verse 16 when he says, if the root is holy, so are the branches. Those who are connected to the root, they are also holy. And he uses that as a springboard to go then into this analogy of this olive tree in which he relates Jews and Gentiles. And so in verse 17, he says, if some of the branches have been broken off. Oh, what does he mean by that? First of all, who is the root? Who is the root? And who are these first branches that are broken off? I think it's important for us to understand from the beginning what he means by this analogy. The root, I take it as... One way of looking at it is the the Abrahamic root in the sense of there is this this calling of Abraham, right? God says, I'm going to call you. I'm going to bless the world through you. And I'm going to I'm going to give you descendants as as far as the as your eyes can see compared to the stars of the sky, compared to the, the, the grains of sand on the seashore. So God enters into a covenant with Abraham and says, I'm going to bless you. I'm entering into a covenant with you. I'm choosing your people to be my people. Now, Paul says it's possible for some of those branches to be broken off. What does he mean by that? Those who are Jews by nature, those who are Jews by birth, those who are ethnically speaking, descendants of Abraham, they can be broken off of the tree. Why would they be broken off? Because of unbelief. Because of unbelief and because of apostasy, they would be broken off of the Abrahamic root. And we could even look to the Old Testament and see examples of this. Paul even mentioned some in Romans 9 that not all who are of the the seed of Abraham are the children of Abraham. In other words, from the very beginning, there were some branches that were broken off, if you will. Ishmael was broken off. Uh, Esau was broken off of this root, this Abrahamic root. And we can see others throughout the history of the Old Testament in which Um, The people of Abraham, the people of Israel, they rejected God and they fell into idol worship and apostasy. And so we could look at almost the entire nation of Israel during the time of Elijah as having been broken off, right? All of these who had bowed the knee to Baal in false worship and had rejected God, they were broken off. Regardless of the fact of whether they could trace their line back to Abraham or not, we've already seen that is not sufficient, right? 
it's not sufficient just to trace your line back to Abraham. If you are unbelieving, if you persist in unbelief, then you are rejected. You are broken off. But we saw in the early part of chapter 11, when God came to Elijah to comfort him and said, I've still got 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. In other words, there are still 7,000 branches attached to this root in your day, Elijah. They're still grafted in. They're still attached to the root of Abraham. So what does he mean then in Paul's day about branches broken off? He's talking about his own Israelite people who have rejected Jesus as their Savior, as their Messiah. That's what he's been saying all the way from chapter 9, isn't it? Going all the way back to the beginnings of chapter 9, I, I wish that I myself could become accursed for my own kinsmen, according to the flesh. In chapter 10, he said, uh, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. So this whole section has been talking about the unbelief of the Israelite people. And because of unbelief, because of their hardening, because of their stiff neck stubbornness, they've been broken off. They are no longer considered to be part of the seed of Abraham. And that goes back to what he was saying in chapter 9. There is an Israel that is, in, that is inside an Israel, right? Not all who are of Israel are Israel. So to be truly of the seed of Abraham, to be truly of the branch of Abraham, means not just that you are an ethnic descendant of his, but that you are a child of Abraham by faith. And you are linked to Abraham and his people in that way. In other words, you're a part of God's chosen people because you are connected by faith in Christ. So some of the branches have been broken off. That is, many of the Israelites who have not believed in Jesus, who have been hardened, they've been broken off. So that you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others. What does that mean? Exactly what he was saying, that the hardening of the Jews has resulted in the gospel going to the nations, to the Gentiles. And back in verses 13 and 14, he says, I am talking to you Gentiles, and I take pride in my ministry. So who he's, who he's talking to is the Gentiles. You, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others. In other words, you were a branch, a shoot, from a different tree, if you will. And you've been spliced and grafted in to the Abrahamic root to be a part of God's eternal covenant people. And now some have criticized Paul here of his lack of understanding of horticulture. And I think they're, they're pressing it beyond what Paul is intending to do here. Paul's not giving a lesson in how to uh, graft branches into an olive tree. This is a theological lesson, isn't it? This is a theological lesson. It's analogy. We don't have to press the horticulture, the science too far. Okay, but some have criticized him on that. But let's focus on the, the theological, spiritual meaning of what Paul is communicating through this analogy. In other words, there is a natural root, if you will, and that natural root are the, the physical descendants of Abraham. But you can be broken off of that natural root through unbelief and apostasy. 
And even if you're not a part of that natural root, if you're from a different tree, a Gentile, if you will, you can be grafted in and be made part of that covenant people of God. And so now you have been grafted in among the others, and now you share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. In other words, you're receiving the nourishment, you're receiving the grace, you're receiving the benefits, the salvation that flows through this tree, if you will, because you're now a part. You're grafted in. So here's the lesson. Here's what Paul wants to communicate to his Gentile readers. Verse 18. Do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. What is he saying? Gentiles, do not be prideful of the fact that you have been chosen and are included while other Jews have been hardened and are not included. Do not be proud over that fact. And I'm going to take just a little detour here. I hope this is not too far of a detour off of the, the central theme of the passage because I think it is connected. I think to a large part, the anti-Semitism that has been witnessed throughout much of church history is because of a failure to heed this warning by Paul. And so you go back and you look over church history and there has been, unfortunately, a history of anti-Semitism among, even among the church, the Christians. Why? What, what has driven that anti-Semitism? I would suggest that what has driven it is theological. And that is that the Jews were seen as responsible for the crucifixion of the Messiah. And that the further unbelief and rejection of the Jews of their Messiah brought on this anti-Semitism. There are many, many good things that Martin Luther did. His view of the Jewish people was not one of them. You can go back and read some of Martin Luther's writings, and he did not have good things to say about the Jewish people. And so just as a history lesson, the rise of Adolf Hitler in Germany did not come out of a vacuum. There had been a long history of anti-Semitism among the German peoples, among many of the peoples of Europe. But it's because of a failure to understand what Paul is saying here. Do not be lifted up in pride. Do not consider yourselves superior to those other branches. What other branches? The Jewish branches. And we could say, well, which Jewish branches? The ones who are still connected or the ones who have been broken off? He doesn't specify, but I would say probably the ones that have been broken off in light of the way that history has unfolded. But either way, Paul is saying, 
you have been, you are Gentiles. You have been grafted in. Do not consider yourself superior to the others. Do not. Do not take pride in that. He says, if you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. In other words, what he's saying to Gentiles, and so therefore he's saying it to the Gentiles of his day, and that means he's saying it to all of us, right? All of us who are Gentiles, who are Christians, he is saying this to us. Remember that it is the root that supports you. What's the root? Abraham and the Abrahamic peoples. So don't forget that we are being grafted in kind of unnaturally, if you will, into this original tree that God planted with Abraham. So the root supports us. And remember what Paul says elsewhere too, that that we were aliens we were cut off. We were set off. We were, we were lost and without hope in this world, Ephesians chapter 2. But now we've been brought in and made citizens of the kingdom of God. So remember where you've come from. Remember why you're in. Remember that this is all the grace of God. That you have nothing to be proud of. This is all by God's loving, merciful grace. And in verse 19, he says this. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. And this may lead to my conclusion earlier that the branches that we're not supposed to take superiority over are the branches that have been broken off. But here he says, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Paul says, granted, that is true. But they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. So why were, the, why were some of the Jewish branches, if you will, why were some of the Jewish people broken off? Because of unbelief. Because of unbelief. And the only reason that you are here and included is because of the grace of God and because you stand here by faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. And now, some of the, the strongest language of warning in the book of Romans comes in the next couple of verses. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. He says at the end of verse 20 for verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Then he says this, consider therefore the kindness and the sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. So going back to the end of verse 21. If he didn't spare the natural branches, he won't spare you either. And then in verse 22, he says, consider the sternness of God and his kindness Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Now here's the question. 
And this is a huge theological question. Can Christians, believers in Jesus Christ, be cut off from this olive tree and lost forever? That's what he seems to be warning about, isn't it? And there are many under the umbrella of the Christian faith who have said that believers can lose their salvation. Free will Baptists believe you can lose your salvation. Uh, Methodists, those in the Wesleyan Nazarene tradition, believe you can lose your salvation. Pentecostal tradition, many believe you can lose your salvation. So there are large segments of the Christian church, different denominations, who believe you can lose your salvation. That it is possible for you to be genuinely in the faith, elect, if you will, and then become non-elect, become lost because of unbelief, because of disobedience. So how do we wrestle with this passage? In light of what Paul said earlier in Romans, right? Romans 8. Romans 8, 29 to 30, that for those whom God foreknew, those he also called, and those he called, those he also justified, and those he justified, those he also glorified. There seems to be no wiggle room there for the possibility of someone who was foreknown and called becoming lost. Because it's the same group. I mean, exactly, and it's emphatic. These same ones who were called are justified. These same ones who were justified are glorified. So there seems to be very little uh, opening for someone to be lost who was foreknown by God. And in fact, that goes against exactly what Paul said back in verse 2 of this chapter. How can those whom God foreknew, how can he reject them? So how do we wrestle with this then? How do we wrestle with verses that teach eternal security of the believer... Versus passages like this that provide stern warning to continue in the faith and remain and believe. Here's, here's how I would answer the question. First of all, true believers in Christ also persevere. True believers in Christ also persevere. And what I mean by that is not just eternal security. Because there are many who teach eternal security, but they teach it without the idea of endurance and perseverance. And I don't believe the, te- I don't believe the scriptures teach that kind of eternal security. In other words, eternal security in the way that the scriptures teach it is always by means of the endurance of the saints and the perseverance of the saints. So, perseverance is necessary. Enduring to the end is necessary. As Revelation puts it, those who endure to the end will be saved. So, endurance, perseverance is necessary. But I believe also that those who are elect of God, those who have been chosen by God, bought by Jesus Christ, they will persevere. Not only that they must, but that they will. 
And as one verse that I think holds this, these, these competing ideas together of God's power in keeping us alongside of our endurance in faith to the end is a verse in Peter. First Peter chapter one, I believe it's verse five that he, Peter talks about believers who are kept by the power of God through faith. Let's think about those two things together in the same verse. Believers are kept by the power of God, but how are they kept? God, the means that God has chosen to keep them by his power is the means of faith. And not just one-time faith, but enduring faith. Through faith. So how do, how do warnings like this fit into that? It's, the way I see it is this. God uses all kinds of means to accomplish his purposes, right? God uses, uh, God uses prayer to accomplish his purposes. God uses people to accomplish his purposes. God uses events in history to accomplish his purposes. If God wants to heal someone, he can use a medicine. He can use a doctor. He can use, he uses means, right? So it's not just that God determines how the end will be, but it also God determines how he's going to accomplish that end and all of the steps that lead to that end. And so for someone to be in the faith, God may have used a prayer of someone praying for that person to be saved. God may have used uh, uh, a Christian to witness and share the gospel for that person to be saved. God may have used a tract like we gave out yesterday, reading scriptures and reading the gospel message. And, and that may be the means that God uses for someone to be saved. We know that faith needs to endure. Well, I believe a part of the means that God uses for our faith to endure is his word. It's, it's his word, the word of God. And one, a, a part of that word of God that helps our faith endure are verses like this that encourage us to endure. So in other words, this, these warnings, these encouragements, if you will, to endure are a part of God's means to help our faith endure. All the way till the end when all God's people are saved. So, continue in belief. And now, he says, to finish the thought in verses 23 and 24, And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. Who's he talking about there? He's talking about the Jewish people, right? The Jewish people. These Jewish people who have been broken off by unbelief, if they come to acknowledge Jesus Christ as their Savior in faith, they can very easily be grafted in again into this covenant people of God. And he says, after all, verse 24, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, that is not naturally a Jew, wild by nature, and you, contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, 
how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? And this is exactly what he's been saying in the two previous comparisons that he's made. That is, if going back to verse 12, if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? Or in verse 15, if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? God can graft them in again. And without getting into the the nitty-gritty of, is it possible for an individual Israelite to be unbelieving and broken off and then believe and be grafted back in? Without getting down to that fine of detail, I would say that Paul is arguing in a grander view of things, a larger view of things, and just talking about the Israelite people as a whole, in that the Israelite people as a whole who have been hard-hearted, who have been stubbornly rejecting Jesus, many of those are going to die and perish, right? Many of those Jewish people are going to die and perish because of unbelief. But when this hardening that God has brought is over, when, he, when it has accomplished its purpose, there will be a great turning of the Jewish people to the faith. And many, many Jews will come into the faith and be saved. And all Paul is saying here is, how easy will that be? How easy will that be? For God to graft back in to this tree those who were, you could say, by nature a part of that tree. Going back to the Abrahamic peoples. How much will their inclusion bring? How much greater will their riches be when they are included? And so all of this fits with Paul's vision of how God is working out his plan. Israel has been hard-hearted. Why? So the gospel should come to us. But then the gospel came to us, and that's going to result eventually in salvation for the Jews once again. So how should we respond to this, to this unfolding of God's plan in history and how he's working this out? I think one clear, obvious application is the one that Paul gives us in this passage. Don't be proud over the fact that you have been grafted in and made a part of the people of God. You're not superior to them. You're not superior to anybody else. The only reason that you are a part of the people of God is by the grace of God. So there's no room for for pride here at all. Another clear application that Paul makes is if you are in the faith, then you continue to stand by faith. So continue to believe. Continue to believe and continue to, as Paul would say in another passage, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. God's worked it in you. God has brought you in. God has grafted you into this olive tree and you stand here by grace through faith. Now continue to work that out in your life by faith. And that applies to every single one of us. We need to endure and continue, persevere in the faith. Continue to work on and cultivate all of the fruits of the Spirit in our lives. 
The Holy Spirit is working in us, but we are working it out. And the other application I would say is this, is pray for and witness to people to be saved. Pray for and witness to people to be saved. Whether that be Jew or Gentile. Because that is the means by which God grafts people into the tree, isn't it? Going back to Romans 10, how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they're sent? So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the message about Christ. So let's be faithful witnesses, faithful prayers, faithful examples, so that we may arouse in some a longing to know Christ, a longing to understand and see and believe the gospel. May God use us in that way. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father in heaven, we just want to praise you and thank you for the the manifold wisdom of God. Lord, you are so infinitely wise. And to just get a glimpse of your workings, your plan for the ages, it truly amazes us. When we think about the way in which you are drawing people to Christ and drawing him, drawing people to the gospel, and all of these different ways in which you accomplish those purposes, Lord, it is truly astounding. Thank you for the grace that you have demonstrated in our lives individually. Thank you that we, Lord, as Gentiles, as wild olive branches, could be grafted in to your people. Lord, help us now to to maintain a sense of humility, a sense of thankfulness and gratitude, and a sense of responsibility, Lord, to share the gospel with those around us. Lord, work among us. Bless your people. Continue to help us to stand in the faith and to produce the fruits of the Spirit. Lord, bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.